very gratified by the response to last week's message. We covered the, the wife's chief responsibility in a Christian marriage, which is submission. And I would encourage you ladies to maybe download that message and go over it again yourself. I'm not sure if it's on the website yet. Um, a couple of people have asked me about it, and I don't think it was yet, but it will be, hopefully. In fact, I would encourage husbands and wives to download both messages and listen to them together and stop as you need and comment as you need and pour over those scriptures. In fact, if you need any clarification on anything I've said, I'd be happy to, to talk to you and, and uh, let you know what I meant or what I believe God's word means, more importantly. So please do that. Take advantage of that. I'm praying that those, these messages will be a blessing to our family and to the future families of our church. And we need to get down to, to business, okay, because we have a lot to cover. I forgot to wear my watch today, so I guess that means I have no time restraints. <laughs> Watches for preachers are pretty much a cosmetic thing anyway, so I've got that guilt driver back there, but I'm not going to look at it too much. Um, <laughs> but if the wife's chief responsibility within a Christian marriage relationship is submission, you could say that the husband's predominant spirit-filled responsibility is to love his wife. In fact, in these verses, verses 25 through 33, we will see uh, just a glimpse of the breadth and the length of the kind of Christian love that our God expects us to shower upon our wives, men. It's our chief duty, our chief call, our privilege to love our wives. But the question I want to ask that we're hopefully going to answer in part today or this morning is that what, does, what, what kind of love does God expect us husbands to give our wives? What does it look like? And this morning I want to look at that because I, I want us to, by the power of God's Spirit, to reach out to our wives in such a way. And I have to underscore and underline by the power of God's Spirit because the kind of love that God calls for us to have for our wives, men, is a supernatural love. Okay? And uh, I talked about that last week, so I'd encourage you to listen to that again. And just as last week we looked at six aspects of a Christian's wife's submission to her husband, this morning we're going to look at five aspects of a believing husband's love for his wife. And the first aspect is this. Men, we are called to love our wives with a selfless love. That's the first aspect. A selfless love. This is the kind of love that holds up our wives' needs above our own. Um, in fact, it, the, the, the key idea is really derived from the word for love that Paul uses in this short little paragraph. He uses it six times. And it's the verb agapao. You have probably heard or are more familiar with the noun form, agape, right? We see it on business cards. We see it in businesses. It's a a word that many Christians use. It, it's love. It's divine love. It's really in the New Testament. It is the embodiment of the highest kind of love. And the upshot of agopao is basically this. It is to place someone in the center of our affections. It is to love and seek the highest good in the one loved. That's basically the essence of what agapao is. And the text kind of bears this out. It tells us several things about agapao love. It tells us, first of all, that it's unconditional. Agapao love is unconditional. Much as we saw last week that a wife's submission 
uh, needs to be given to her husband. It's of her own free will, but it is also without condition, remember? It is not based on the husband's abilities or his spiritual maturity or even his knowledge of the Bible, but it is a freely given gift without condition. So love, our command to love our wives, gentlemen, is without conditions. In other words, we're not commanded to love our wives only if she's earned it. We're not commanded to love our wives if she is, is at any time lovable. It's irrespective of her merits, if you will. So agapao love is unconditional. It's also a command. This verb is given to us in the imperative. That is, it's a directive to men to love. In fact, Paul starts this whole paragraph in verse 25 with a command to love our wives. He ends it in verse 33 with a command to love our wives. And this tells us, gentlemen, that our love for our wives is not dependent on their response either. I know that's hard, but it's not dependent on their response. And we are commanded to actively love our wives, and sometimes we will not get the response that we desired or wished for. And at those times, especially at those times, God says, I want you to love her unconditionally. It's a command. You have to do it. Another way to put this principle is to put it this way, to say basically that agapao love or loving our wives is first and foremost a choice that we need to make. It is a spirit-filled choice we need to make. Agapao love is also a love that perseveres. Uh, our love for our wives needs to be something that is an ongoing decision. This isn't the, what we swear at the altar when we get married and we leave it there. This isn't about busting out agapao love for your wife's birthday. Okay? <laughs> this is not something we check off the list and get, out, get it out of the way. It is an ongoing decision. Not only does Paul give us a command, an imperative, but he also gives it to us in the present tense. This is an ongoing choice that we choose to love her for her good regardless of her merit because we choose to love. And this is just um, an aside, okay? But this exalted call for husbands to selflessly love their wives was wholly absent in the Greco-Roman world. It just wasn't there. In fact, even in rabbinic literature, as much as it hurts me to say, women are generally viewed as inferior to men. There is a, a great prayer book, uh, Daily Prayers, the Jewish Liturgy, that said every, every morning, and one of the prayers is, is, is beautiful the way it starts out, and then it goes downhill. It says, blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe. That's beautiful. But then the reason the deity is blessed in this prayer is because, quote, you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Perhaps Paul had this in mind when he penned Galatians 3.28 that we quoted last week, but in Jesus there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Biblical theology just blows common prejudice out of the water. It is so beautiful. But especially in terms of the biblical view of a woman and of a wife, 
exalting the wife as Paul does here in Ephesians 5, uh, making her needs subservient, her husband subservient to his wife's needs. That was just crazy back then. Unheard of in the ancient world. And I might add, even with our PC progressiveness and with our voguish progressiveness, this kind of love is unheard of in relationships today in the world. And that's because I believe it is forged by the Spirit of God in the heart of a Christian man. So agapao love is unconditional. It is a command. It perseveres. And I want to deal with this just very quickly and separately. But it also is independent, guys, of our emotions. And you say, what are you talking about? How can you talk about love without emotion? You know, are you talking about Vulcans falling in love? You know, androids falling in love? I don't know how Dada and Mr. Spock fell in love. Spock's got a girlfriend now, you know. But this is not a love without emotion. The emotions will be there plenty. But it's a decision that we need to make apart from emotions. Because if, if our love were dependent on our emotions, we would only love when we feel reciprocated. We would only love when we feel that person has earned it. It would be miserly. It would be stingy. God calls us, men, to love our wives with palms out. Not like this to receive, but palms out to bless and to give. That's the kind of love God calls us to exercise, agapao love. And you say, well, that may be so, but that's just crazy. What kind of crazy love to quote Van Morrison, is that. This is unheard of. Marcelo, it's, it's wholly unrealistic. Who loves like that? My brothers and sisters, this is the love of Christ with which you and I have been loved. We know this crazy love. We receive this crazy love day in and day out, every moment of the day in unceasing torrents, uninterrupted torrents. We swim in it. We're covered in it. This is the love of Christ. And this leads us to the second point. A husband is called to love his wife with a selfless love and secondly, with a sacrificial love. And you say, well, what's the difference between selfless and sacrificial? Simply this. A selfless love is that kind of love that holds her needs above her own. A sacrificial love is a love that is spent to secure those needs, to meet those needs. We spend ourselves for her good, men, that's the love with which Christ has loved us. Agopao love modeled is the love of Christ. You know, he not only held our best interests in his heart and in his mind when he became, was born among us, when he became a man, but he spent himself on the cross in order to secure those benefits. Our greatest need was redemption, forgiveness of sins, fellowship with God, peace with God. Jesus came with those interests in mind. He died on the cross to secure them for us. His is a sacrificial love as well as selfless. Look at, I don't think I even read the text. Ever. Verse 25, husband, love your wives. That's agapao love. But then he says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ's sacrificial love is illustrated on the cross. He gave himself voluntarily, willingly, completely because he loved us. And this is the command before us, guys, the only command. In this whole paragraph, 
Paul does not tell us to subjugate our wives, to be the boss of our wives, to make our wives uh, obey us, to get our way with our wives. The only command we have is to selflessly, sacrificially love our wives. And Jesus gave it all, didn't he? He laid it down. He bore our sins. He suffered the wrath of God Almighty for those sins in our place. He died a sinner's death. He held nothing back. In fact, Romans 5, 8 says that while we were sinners, Christ what? Died for us. Two verses later, Romans 5, 10. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. In other words, while we couldn't respond because we were dead in our sins, Jesus still loved us and died for us. When we were enemies of the cross, when we spurned the love of God, when we rejected the love of God, when we hated God, when we were enemies, Christ and the Father loved us and persevered because of that sacrificial love. Right? Christ loves without conditions. And even now, guys, when, you know, as beloved children, that's what we are. Sabo, a couple, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, said that we need to understand that we are beloved. We are beloved children. But you know what? As beloved children, we still blow chunks all the time, right? We failed Christ all the time. Blow chunks. That's not a theological term, but you understand what I mean. <laughs> you know, um, if you follow me for... For a few days, you'll, you'll begin to see, man, this guy must be such a burden to the Lord. You know, we, we blow it all the time. Have you ever had one of those days where you're confessing your sin? No sooner have you confessed your sin that you're committing your next one. You're driving, and there's a real slow dude in a fast lane. You're thinking, what, what is wrong with this, this, this subhuman before me? And then you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you go, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's a creature created in your image. I know, I know that. And look at that idiot passing me on the right. <laughs> oh, the laws don't apply to you, do they, <laughs> Mr. Every? And then, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Please cleanse me of that. Please, please. Why is it that all the idiots come out when I'm driving, you know? And it, it's just, you ever have those days? Where it's not so much an act as a total attitude, and you stink spiritually. What does the Lord do? How does the Lord Jesus respond? Does he say, I've had it with these people. Enough is enough. Schleppers, all of them. I'm revoking my love for them right now. Or when we respond to the Lord with a tepidness that often rules our heart, that, that quasi-love, it's not really vibrant, where we lose sight of who he is and we don't love him as we should, does the Lord say, you know what? I'm not feeling the love right now, so I'm not going to dish it out. I'm going to hold back. I'm going to give them something. I'm going to give them a cold shoulder is what I'm going to give them. You know, they don't deserve it. All I do is give and give. I'm going to give them silence and snow, baby. I'm going to make them feel the chill. Is that how the Lord responds to our disobedience, our lack of affection, our selfishness? When the Lord Jesus 
and the disciples were on that last trip to Jerusalem, the last Passover, uh, he was going there to die. Okay? He knew it. In fact, he told his men that. And so his heart was very, very heavy with the anticipation of the cross. Um, and he was probably in a pensive mood, a thoughtful mood, not talking a lot, but thinking a lot. His, his hour was about to come where his blood would need to be spilt. And Jesus, as a man, remember, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And as a man, he no doubt desired the understanding, the fellowship, the support, the affection of his men, at least because this was the most difficult period of his life. And you would think that the disciples, sensing the Lord's evident seriousness and, and you know, the way he was behaving, that they would come around him, understanding him a little bit and trying to, to understand more and, and praying for him and trying to find ways to encourage him because he was in such grief. And yes, they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't. They couldn't comprehend his death, let alone his resurrection. But Jesus had told them, as I said, that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and he was going to die. And those words troubled them. So they understood Jesus at some level. And you would think that the sense of gathering spiritual storm that they sensed would have driven them around their master in, in a kind of curious and thoughtful concern. You would think that would happen. But Mark tells us in his gospel that as they made their way, their way to Jerusalem, as they were approaching Jerusalem, that the disciples were in the throes of a heavy, heavy argument, discussion amongst themselves, very spirited discussion. But it wasn't about Jesus or his needs. It was all circling around which one of them was the greatest. That's what they were fighting about. And the, the conflict crescendoed with James and John, two brothers, coming to Jesus, according to Matthew 20, 20, with their mother. And there, before Jesus, making the, the audacious request to have the top two places of honor in his kingdom. And they were going to Jerusalem, and Luke 19, 11 tells us their expectations. It says, when Jerusalem came into view, they expected the kingdom of God to appear immediately. That was, was, in, their, was in their head. And these two guys beat the other disciples to the punch, their competitors, and put in for this massive promotion. And they even used their mother to work the deal. And you got to realize what's going on here. There's a lot of layers. Their mother, Salome, was likely the Lord's aunt, the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's pretty widely accepted among scholars that that's the case. Pretty, pretty convincing um, line of reasoning for that. So they're bringing their mother, and so they're, they're using the mother, the aunt, the family, the mishpocha angle to weasel in at the top and secure the top two posts in the new administration. And this really made the other disciples very angry. They, be, they act, reacted viscerally. It says they became indignant with James and Don for their preemptive, shrewd, and bold move. And so they were really mad at those two guys. And James and John were really mad at the other guys. And they were all mad at each other. And so this poisonous, toxic, noxious cloud hung like a pall over them all. And, and, and that went clear into the Lord's 
last night with him, the, the night in which he, he was betrayed. So the Lord had already taught them. He, he said, look, guys, you've seen, he saw the fight brewing. He said, you've seen how the Gentiles do this. They lorded over their people. But it is not so with you. I have not taught you that. The greatest among you will be what? The servant. And Peter, James, and John, and all the rest were kind of going, okay, but I digress. Let me give you five reasons, guys, humbly, why I think I should be the number one guy among us. It went right over their head. Jesus had entered his great passion, that intense time of suffering, right before the Seder, through the Seder, and the events leading up to and culminating in the cross. He was about to make his way to the Garden of Gethsemane in a few hours. And there, his grief, his anxiety, his distress was so great that he almost died from the distress. Matthew 26, 38. And by the way, those of you who do deal with anxiety, Jesus knew the full extent of what that is and more. But before going to the Garden, he had come to that place with the disciples for the Passover meal. And he was feeling the weight of the cross. It was all coming down on his shoulders. It was crushing him. His hour had come. And instead of the eleven reaching out to Jesus to comfort him, to pray for him, they were unable to connect with him because of their petty, selfish dispute. And you would think that the Lord would have arisen from that Passover Seder, from the table, thrown down the towel and said... Men, you need to go away with a little righteous indignation. If anybody could do it, it would be Jesus, right? You need to get out of my sight and go away and think real hard about the way you're behaving. Ever do that with your kid? Young man, you, you need to go to that corner. Face that corner and think about your attitude. You, you can't close the door on your sister's head. That is unacceptable. He could have laid into these guys with a good deal of righteous indignation, a heavy dose of reality, and said, Enough! Shh. No more! Jesus could have thrown in the towel. But do you know what Jesus did? He picked up the towel. <laughs> and then he took off his outer robe. Then he girded up his inner robe burying his legs, which is kind of shameful for that day. People didn't do that. They covered themselves. And then he got down on his hands and his knees, and he took that towel. He began to wash the disciples' feet. He didn't lecture them. He showed them what humility was like. And you know, that simple act of service, washing their feet, would pale. Absolutely, and that's a beautiful scene. As beautiful as that is, it would pale in the shadow of the service that he would render for them on the cross the next day. That's what Jesus did. In the face of their pettiness, in the face of their failure, repeated failure, ongoing failure, their inability to comprehend things spiritually and acting in a very selfish, fleshly way, he chose to love his men with a selfless, sacrificial love. And so John 
chapter 13, verse 1, which tells us about the, disciple, the Lord's washing of the feet of the disciples, begins this way. In John 13, 1, we read, Now, before the feast of the Passover, before they sat down to have the meal, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I love that. Literally, unto the end, he loved them. The them in that sentence is in the emphatic position, meaning they, in the midst of their great pettiness, they were the focal point of his intense, selfless, sacrificial love. Jesus chose to love his men. He chose to love the church, not because we deserve it, but because he loves, period. And that's the example we have before us, guys. That's the example we have before us. The love God is commanding us to shower upon our wives is a continual love, a continual choice to love them for their good, whether or not they respond, respond at any cost. And that's the love which we experience each and every day from Jesus. Our master does not ask us to walk where he does not lead. So what kind of love are we called to give our wives? It is a selfless love, a sacrificial love. Thirdly, it is a sanctifying love. A sanctifying love. This is exhortation, again, guys, is based upon the, the example of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. And when I say church, yes, I am speaking about the church universal, absolutely. But I'm also speaking, and the Bible is speaking about this church. This very church, in fact, you and I in this church, Jesus loves you and I, loves this body with a sanctifying love. Look at verses 26 and 27. So that he might sanctify her, the church, you and me, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be whole or would be holy and blameless. God is in the business of sanctifying his people. The term sanctify or sanctifying simply means to set apart, to consecrate. And here Jesus is setting us apart to himself in holiness and for holiness. You say, what does that mean? What does that mean? Sanctification is a very broad term, okay? And there's really three aspects to it. There's a past aspect to it, there's a present, and then there's a future aspect of it. When Jesus saved us, when we believed the gospel message, he sanctified us, meaning that he made us holy. He took away all the guilt. He just took it away. I think sometimes when we think of God's forgiveness, we think in terms of like the products that we buy to take stains out of the carpet. You know, we buy products to take the stain out of the carpet because those products work mostly well, right? <laughs> they work pretty well, but then there's always the faint outline of where you spilled your bean dip. And we kind of think that's how God forgives. He gets most of it. No, 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 no. Christ, God through Christ, rips out the carpet. There is no more old carpet. There's only new. He doesn't take away part of their sin or expunge most of the sin so that we have a new and improved us. That's not what God sees. 
When he sanctifies us at salvation, he gives us the very righteousness of Jesus Christ so that in his eyes, we are as holy, as blameless, as Jesus is holy and blameless. It's not an expunging. It is a replacement. That's a past sanctification. There's also, however, a present sanctification because you and I still live in these bodies of unredeemed flesh. I don't know about you, but, you know, I haven't received my glorified body yet. I know some of you are wondering, does he have his glorified body? I think so. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I'm the guy that's driving in the fast lane getting mad at everybody, okay? I have to fight and tame my, my sinfulness all the time. But God, through Christ, is step by step, day by day, month by month, year by year, transforming me into the image of Jesus Christ. And that process continues until that future day of sanctification, some call it glorification, when we are standing literally before God in perfect holiness and our, our practice matches our position. That is what God is doing. In fact, that future glory, guys, is the point to which God is driving your life. And he will continue this process until he fully succeeds, until we stand before him perfectly holy. And that's hard for us to understand because we can't relate to each other apart from our sin, right? But there's a day coming when you and I will not have mixed motives. We will not have impure thoughts. We will not have uh, hateful thoughts. We will not have hateful behavior. But we, every thought, every action will glorify God. That's the future day of glorification. And that's what God is driving your life to. That's the focal point of your life. That's where it's going to begin, if you will, or end. That's inexorably where we are going. Nobody can stop that. So be encouraged. God is taking you through the process of sanctification to become more and more like Jesus until you reflect him perfectly. And I know that sometimes we think, yeah, but that seems so far away. And I feel like I'm taking one step forward and three steps back. But know this. God is doing this work. And it is God who will complete it for his glory. And that's why Paul wrote in Philippians 1, 6, 6, For I am confident, completely persuaded of this very thing, he said, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We as a people, as a church, as individuals, as Christians, we have been set apart by Jesus Christ in holiness and for holiness, sanctification. You say, well, how does he accomplish that sanctification? Verse 26, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It's through the Bible. The gospel, the word of God was preached to us. And we believed it. That gospel saved us. It made us into his glorious people. First Peter, or Peter in 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25, talks about the word of God being the imperishable seed, that gospel that actually germinates into eternal life. It was the word of God that we heard, believed, that sanctified us, that, that made us holy, that saved us. And that continuation 
of sanctification ongoing now is also accomplished by the word of God. He continually, the Lord cleanses us, purifies us, transforms us through his holy word. The Bible is our means of sanctification from our spiritual birth to the day the Lord calls us home. And that is the process, that is what Christ is accomplishing. He cleanses us, he washes us at salvation, and he continues to sanctify us day by day until we're in his presence perfectly holy. His love, guys, this is the point, is a sanctifying love. That's what he's in the business of doing. That's what he's accomplishing. And the great focus of our love for our wives, gentlemen, should be a sanctifying love. We should be concerned with her personal holiness. Nothing should really weigh as heavily on our hearts as her sanctification. Your wife's greatest need, gentlemen, is to become more like Jesus Christ. Our greatest concern, therefore, should be a desire for that same transformation. That's why we need to come around them with the word to encourage them. When we see, you know, areas of her life, struggles that could pull her away from Christ, that could diminish the reflection of Christ in her soul, in her life, we need to come alongside them and lead them in sanctification as the Lord does us. I think, gentlemen, we really need to become students of our wives. Constantly observing, constantly praying, asking God for discernment as, as they transition through the phases of life and, and as we long to identify in them their strengths, <coughs> pardon me, their spiritual gifts, their inclinations, and as we see those things, we can point them out and blow the wind of biblical encouragement into their sails. Perhaps your, your wife has a strong sense of compassion, of mercy and compassion. And so you see that in her. It, you know, it, it compels her to reach out to people in need and, and do something. We can at least identify that. We can affirm it. And we can enable her, perhaps by opening up her schedule or even financially, we can enable her to carry out that encouragement. We can certainly point out that the, the whole motivating factor of compassion was a major theme in Jesus' life. In Mark 1.41 and Matthew 20.34, when he healed people, he said he was moved with compassion, and so he re- reached out and touched them. You know, when, when she reaches out in compassion, she is literally walking in the steps of her Savior. So we can encourage that. We can help her pinpoint that. And this isn't always natural for us, guys, because we're more, like, pragmatic. I notice that a lot of the mercy and compassion gifts are in women. I don't have the gift of mercy and compassion. And I don't say that proudly. I still need to nurture those virtues. Okay? But it just comes naturally to my wife. She sees somebody in need and she wants to do something to help them. My immediate thought many of the times is, how much is it going to cost us to be compassionate? <laughs> now, can we afford to be compassionate right now? Maybe we could hold back the compassion until the next calendar month. You know, That's the wrong answer, by the way. <laughs> Nine times out of ten. We're there to give our wisdom as well. But we need to encourage them in their spiritual gifts. 
in their inclinations. Blow that wind of biblical encouragement into their sails. Also, as students of our wives, we need to lovingly, prayerfully, humbly come around them and help identify the areas where she needs to grow. And some of you guys are going, okay, now you're talking. That's what I'm talking about. I can pinpoint areas where she needs to grow, I'll tell you that, but it's not the attitude. Guys, what are your wife's struggles? You know her better than anybody else in this world, probably. What are the areas in her life where she struggles? Maybe she struggles with envy or an unforgiving heart towards a particular person. Or she finds it easy to talk and so a deterrent to her growth spiritually is gossip. Maybe she has a hard time trusting the Lord to provide for your financial needs. What are her struggles? Whatever they are, part of our responsibility, gentlemen, in a sanctifying love is to come alongside our wives and humbly, with an understanding of our own weaknesses and sins, we need to bring God's word to bear on their weaknesses so that they may be reminded of the mind of Christ. And we can lovingly, humbly again, hold them accountable to the word. I guess what I'm trying to say also is that really our chief discipleship relationship, gentlemen, should be with our wives. We can also pray for them, pray with them, and continually affirm our love for them so that in the safety of a Christian marriage where she feels loved unconditionally, she may become more and more like the Savior. Sanctification, that's what the Lord has accomplished and is accomplishing in our, in our lives, in our church, and that's the sanctifying love with which we must lead our wives. So husbands are called to love their wives with a selfless love, a sacrificial love, a sanctifying love. Fourthly, it is a sustaining love. And you can see, just as I'm going along, why this needs to be spirit-fed, right? Spirit-empowered. Look at verses 28 through 30. So husbands ought to love also, or to also love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. He will be greatly blessed by the woman, by the Lord, by the circumstances. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. In these three verses, God charges husbands to love their wives with a sustaining love. That is, to provide a caring, nurturing context where they can grow spiritually. And to help us understand this exhortation, Paul gives us an example that every one of us can relate to. Okay? Every one of us. A husband is to care for his wife as his own body. He, that's what he's tapping into. As he cares for his own body, so he ought to care for his wife. Everybody cares for their own body. We all get that, right? When you get up in the morning, you rub your face, you stretch. Why do you do that? Because it feels good and you want to help yourself wake up more. You go take a shower because you want to feel clean. You don't want to smell bad. Hopefully. You want to take care of your skin so that you, you don't break out in rashes and start to peel and flake. That's kind of gross. But, you know, it's, by the way, I'm, I'm convinced that that's the number one fear of man, to have some kind of rash or itchiness. I mean, remember those old head and shoulders commercials? Where they would have a handsome guy and a handsome girl, like, walking into an elevator, and you're, you're, seeing, you're hearing what they're thinking. And the girl would go, oh, nice guy. And then the doofus, the guy would go, huh? 
And she would go, nice guy, but that itch. Could be eczema, seborrhea, psoriasis. I mean, that's dandruff. They give these awful names to dandruff because they want to sell us their product because they know we preen over our bodies. They're preying on our fear. But they know we're going to wash our hair because we don't want dandruff. You brush your teeth because you don't like what tooth decay does to your mouth. You, you put on deodorant because you don't want to have that stressed out smell. You know? You comb your hair. You get yourself dressed. You saunter on downstairs to have breakfast. breakfast. Let me ask you a question. What do you have breakfast? It's because you're hungry, right? And you know that if you don't satiate your hunger, you're going to be really cranky. And you're really going to run people off the road at that point. You want to satiate your appetite because you like the way food tastes. And it brings pleasure to you. That's what we spend all day doing. In fact, we spend our whole day avoiding pain. That's why you don't toast bread on an open fire with your bare hands. <laughs> That's why you obey traffic laws. Because you don't want to get a ticket and, and have your insurance rates go up and it'll diminish the quality of your life. And if you are in traffic and you get a stress headache, you take Tylenol because you want to alleviate the pain. We do all this and infinitely more because we want to be comfortable and happy. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, not, excuse me, as their own bodies, not as if they were your own bodies, but as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. I mean, the thought of purposely inflicting pain upon ourselves is absolutely ridiculous, right? Nobody goes about their day looking for opportunities to inflict pain, unless you're a St. Louis Rams fan like I am, or a Cubs fan, right, Sven? You don't say, hey, look, a shard of glass. I think I'll cut myself for the pain of it. We don't do that. You say, well, what about those self-abasing religions? Got you there, Tolopilo. What about those self-abasing religions? Like in the Philippines, where they do their Easter marches and they, they do all that inflicted pain. You ever seen those guys? They cut themselves with volcanic rock and shards of glass and then they suspend themselves. They, they put hooks uh, through their subcutaneous tissue and literally suspend it in there, hang from their skin. And then there's always the guy that gets nailed to a cross for a short while. You say, what about them? That disproves this verse. No, it doesn't. You want to know why they inflict that pain on themselves? It's because they really think they're going to impress God with that. They're going to gain an extra measure of, of credit points. In their mind, they're, they're going to really help their frequent sufferer card. They're going to chalk major points with God, and they know that people around them will think, man, you guys are really holy, super holy, they do it to gratify their pride, to benefit their spiritual status, to benefit their reputation. And, and not, that's not what happens, but that's what falsely motivates them. They are thinking that they are benefiting. It's self-love. And by the way, as soon as the ordeal, the, the parade is done, do you know what they do? They jump all over those wounds with medicine, with salves, with creams, ointments, acetaminophen, 
Vicodin, Norco, Tamiflu, I don't know what else. <laughs> they don't beat themselves up all year. They prove Paul, Paul's point for no one ever hated his own flesh. It's a natural condition of human beings to constantly care for themselves. We're all, we all have a little bit of Bob Wiley in us. Give me, give me, give me. I need, I need. You know, that's true. Do you not know who Bob Wiley is? One of the greatest characters in American literature. I, talk to me afterwards. But you know what else? And we're really running out of time, so I've got to run here. But what's, what's really amazing, as true as it is that we care naturally for ourselves, the amazing thing is that with as much as we do for ourselves, we never think about it. Right? We don't have a list that says, wake up, wash your face, you know, go to the bathroom, take a shower, get dressed. Oh, wait a minute. This is a multi-stepper. Let's see here. Oh, here it is. Okay. Get dressed. Pants first, then shoes. Got it. Okay. What am I leaving out? Oh, the, the whole hunger thing. Let's see. Satiate appetite with empty calories, something called... Cereal. We don't need to remind ourselves. We do it naturally. And that's Paul's point. That we ought to love our wives and care for our wives in such a way that it just comes naturally. It's a default. It's like eating breakfast. It's a habit. How do you form habits? Lots and lots of repetition and practice, which works real well with the present tense of this these two verbs at the beginning and end of this chapter or this section. Our love for our wives needs to, to flow naturally and create a safe environment where they can grow securely surrounded by our encouragement, guys. And, and to help drive this home, Paul borrows a couple of terms from child rearing. He says, but nobody hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Nourishes is a Greek word, ektrepho, that is sometimes translated to feed. But that doesn't really capture the, the meaning. That's a technical term. I mean, it does mean to feed. But it carries the idea of feeding within the context of rearing and raising up a child. And so that implies a lot of care and a lot of nurture. In fact, in the Old Testament translation, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when it's translated into the Greek, this is translated uh, into English. It's translated to nurse. Literally, to nurse and all the nurturing that that implies. In the New Testament, Paul uses it like this as well in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 when he talks to the Thessalonians about how he discipled them. He says, we prove to be uh, gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. The whole nursing mother thing is the derivative of this word. It means to care for with great gentleness and affection. And then Paul uses one other word, cherish. That's, this is actually a very cool word. Actually, it's a very warm word because it means literally to warm. To warm. Has the idea of to brood like a mother hen gently broods over her eggs or her young. She's very careful. She doesn't step all over them. She carefully warms them, tenderly warms them. In that same passage of 1 Thessalonians 2.7, it is translated tenderly cares. It means to warm tenderly. 
It's like when your kids are in a pool for a long time on a tepid day. And even though it's hot outside, um, you know, the pool is about 90 degrees. And after about three hours, they start getting a little hypothermic. And they get out of the pool and they're shaking like leaves, right? I used to, this was one of my favorite parts about being a parent of swimmers. I mean, what do you do at that point when they're little especially? You get a big towel and you wrap it tight around them. And you scoop them up into your lap and you wrap your arms around them. And you transfer your heat, you transfer your warmth, right? Remember how good that felt? This term cherish has the idea in it of virtually snuggling, okay? And again, that's not, you're not going to find that in a main theological dictionary, but that's the idea. It's to create warmth, to protect, and to brood over. And the illustration of what this looks like, guys, is again the illustration of Christ and his relationship to us. This is the kind of environment Jesus provides for us to grow spiritually. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. We are Christ's actual body. It's not like we were, we are. And he is our head and sustains us, okay? And he does not, we have this organic relationship with Jesus Christ. He, he does not view us as objects. He does not view us as pawns that he collects like in a trophy case. He does not view us as an organization. He views us as his body. And he nurtures and nourishes us. And that's the example we must follow as husbands. We want to provide a sustaining atmosphere in our relationship a warm and secure context where wives can grow and develop as mothers, as wives, and especially as believers. Let's see. Lastly, um, husbands are called to love their wives with an indissoluble love. And I'll just spell that for you. I-N-D-I-S-S-O-L-U-B-L-E. That means not subject to being torn apart or dissolved. It's an indissoluble love. And you say, Marcelo, you started every one of your points with an S. Indissoluble does not start with an S. I know. But there's no word starting with an S that even matched indissoluble. That's what the text calls for. And besides indissoluble, it has a strong S component. <laughs> but the, this idea begins where we, where we left off in verse 30. Because we are members of his body. This speaks of the indissoluble union that we share with Christ. You and I cannot absolutely cannot be separated from Christ. To, to have that happen would be to diminish Christ's glory, and that is impossible. This union is permanent. It is a permanent union between a man and a woman, and the language that Paul surrounds this, this uh, verse with are, is really indissoluble. I mean, for this reason, it says, a man shall leave his father and mother. You know, parents are the undisputable authorities in the lives of their children while they're growing up. But when a man and a woman marry, that authority is literally severed. The word to leave here means to leave behind. The implication is to abandon, quite literally, to forsake. It's a very strong word. Does that mean that, that parents, I mean, the children can forsake their parents, reject them, dishonor them? Not at all. We're called to 
honor our parents throughout their lives, whether it means physically, emotionally, sometimes even uh, financially, 1 Timothy 5.4. But what this is teaching us, both Genesis 2.24 and Ephesians 5.31, it's teaching us that when a man and a woman get married, they become a whole new entity, a singular entity, so much so that God says they are joined, literally glued together. In fact, this is the uber-hyper word for glued. It literally means to be super-glued, so much so that they become one flesh. They become a whole new entity, and the two shall become one flesh, literally one body. And the marriage relationship is so beautiful, guys, so permanent, so beloved of God that it is, God says to us, you know what? I'm revealing this to you for the first time in the New Testament. That relationship, marriage relationship, is a beautiful picture of how my son loves you. No other institution is raised to those dizzying heights. He says in verse 32, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Our marriages display the love that Jesus has for us. That's our model. So you say, what's the take home on an indissoluble love? Simply this, gentlemen, our wives need us to lead them with an indissoluble love. Men, she needs to know that you are committed to her at any cost. And there are some among you in this congregation that are facing some significant challenges in your family. And if you're not, you will. But those challenges have the potential of absolutely shredding your marriage. Tearing it apart if you let them. Brothers, we need to know, she needs to know that you see your marriage relationship in the same way God sees it. As permanent, as indissoluble. Does she know, guys, that you are committed to her no matter what? You need to be, and she needs to know. Let me just read that last verse It's a summary verse. We've covered everything in it. But let me just read it because it is God's word. Nevertheless, each individual among you, verse 33, also is to love his own wife as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This is God's will for spirit-filled people. Let's pray.